You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Jason. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today, I'm your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by three senior leaders within the Melbourne tech community. In this episode, we'll be discussing uh, what business decision can you make to improve your, your what technical decision can you make to improve your business. Um, before we jump into the questions, it would be great to meet our panelists. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, to our panelists. So, Greg, would you like to introduce yourself and kick things off for us? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, my name is Greg Collins. I'm the CTO at CoreJourney. CoreJourney, we're a voice analytics company um, focusing on conversation insights um, based in a mixture of AWS and Azure and in um, Australia, US, Canada and the UK. Um, I'm very passionate about, I think, technology, where it actually makes a difference to the business. Um, I'm in a small business and, and um, our success is very much driven from the types of technology decisions we make and the products that we build. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for that, Greg. Uh, Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jason. Um, so, Richard Glute, I'm um, CTO at the Mantle Group um, of, the, of their data brands. Um, so, the Mantle Group is Australia's largest privately owned uh, technology consulting company. Um, we uh, sort of have three domains around uh, digital uh, cloud and, and data that we we work with customers on in my my space it's all around data anything end to end and I um, yeah and uh, I guess one of the things I'm always being passionate about is building uh, great teams that are able to you know create um, you know great outcomes for our for our businesses uh, through through technology and, and bring them closer to the operational side of things. Great, great. Thanks, Richard. Uh, um, ben, do you want to go next? Thanks, Jason. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Chu. I'm the Head of Data and Technology for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Uh, so the ACF is Australia's national environment organisation, and we represent more than 800,000 people uh, who are fighting for, uh, to protect nature and biodiversity across Australia. Um, so I lead a team of six uh, data, digital and technology experts, um, and we have ambitions to uh, to really make not just my t uh, my organisation's lives easier in terms of applying digital technology uh, to everything we do, but also to elevate the advocacy of our of our supporters and donors uh, to reach those in the halls of power to uh, protect the things that we care about in nature. Great, thanks, Ben. Thanks for that. Uh, perfect. Let's dive into our first question that was brought forward by Greg, which is what architectural change has seen the biggest improvement in speed of feature delivery? Greg, would you like to give us um, a little bit more detail on that one? Yes. I mean, I think it often comes from what slows down delivery as, as well. And I think we see a lot of architectural patterns. Probably actually, and recently we've seen um, some conversations around the monolith coming back. We've seen microservices being, um, have a very strong flavor, see a lot in event-driven architecture. And I must admit, I think a lot of data architectures are really interesting now as well. So hearing from Richard will be, will be brilliant. But um, I mean, that was the gist of the question around the types of architectures that really see an improvement in um and the speed of your delivery. Okay, cool. So the question was, what architectural change has seen the biggest improvement in speed of feature delivery? Ben, uh, what do you think of that question? 
Um, yeah, this is a really interesting and uh, super hot topic right now because I'm sure most of the tech, uh, uh, techie geeks have seen um, Amazon videos, uh, uh, recent switch and explanation about uh, moving away from microservices back to monolithic. And when you think about the why Amazon's done it, they've done it from from two particular uh, perspectives, right? One is about orchestration, and they identified a significant orchestration bottleneck where uh, the microservices were uh, and the uh, delivery was just getting too caught up and it was causing scaling issues. And uh, and there was almost a secondary effect where the dollars just became too much, even for Amazon. And, you know, you think about the amount uh, of revenue and the video and all the crazy things that uh, Amazon can do. So, but the takeaway that, uh, that I think is really interesting to ponder for us is the one that uh, there's been a real shift towards breaking uh, architectures down towards a more microservices-driven architecture to make everything a bit lighter, to incorporate DevOps uh, uh, methodologies in. But uh, I'm always going to have to come back to, the, is what we are trying to deliver the reflected by the architecture or are we, cons- or are we constantly iterating, reviewing the, what uh, what the architecture says, not just about the product or service, but what it actually says about the, the, an organization as well, too. Um, it, it certainly, um, where I work, we've uh, slowly moved towards the microservices architecture as well uh, for the last few years as we've built our own Azure data, uh, data lake house based on Azure components. And that's worked really well for us, uh, but I don't think that's uh, necessarily the uh, the best practice or most optimal approach for every single organization there. So we have to be a little bit careful about the, not just running blindly to the next fad or, uh, or or what do we think? Hey, it's monolithic back. Hey, let's go do monolithic again. We've got to be a little bit careful about rushing um, uh, towards the next greatest thing. Mm, okay, cool. And, and uh, Richard, what do you think of, of that question? Uh, yeah, well, that's an interesting one. Um, so I think... Part of the challenge here is you see this in a lot of different areas, right? But um, but I think, you know, going from, I mean, we worked with monoliths for many, many, many years and we're well aware of the shortcomings and challenges in that space. Um, it's a trade-off when you go down uh, a microservice uh, journey. And if you, you know, remember the original advice when they first came out, it was, you know, don't, don't go crazy and don't create like hundreds of microservices, right? Because guess what, guys, it's hard to manage. Um, and that's why I, I feel like we're just seeing a reaction to that now. People have apply microservices as a pattern, irrespective of whether it's actually useful or not. And, you know, the answer is probably several services, you know, not one, not a hundred. It's it's somewhere in between. So I think it's looking at your use cases, looking at your usage patterns uh, in op- operations, um, you know, uh, would probably be my, my add-on, I guess, to what, what Ben was talking about. Um, but I think, um, you know, maybe to sort of take it in the data direction, yeah, we've seen some really interesting architectural changes over the last sort of five five years or so um, in the data space. Um, and I think sort of moving away from, you know, this sort of idea of operational systems and, and analytic systems being these completely distinct things. Um, I think organisations that have managed to create an environment where their data is sort of um, accessible and and has all the governance applied and, and, is, and is available, um, they're able to move much, much more quickly than, than organizations where 
that, that haven't done that, which is to be fair, most most organisations at this point. Um, so yeah, so some of the new patterns that we're seeing, and it's more of a culture than a technology driven thing, I suppose, but uh, it reflects in the technology architecture, uh, which is having that sort of central, um, you know, whether it's a lake house or whether it's, um, you know, a, a sort of um, distributed, um, you know, data hub or data mesh approach that seems to be, uh, you know, gaining popularity, but people are still learning very much how to go about doing it um, on the hype cycle. But uh, but I think it's got a lot of promise as to as to making that um, the the availability of data for decision making um, and adding new features. And certainly, if you want to do ML, uh, it's kind of essential because, as we all know, people doing ML spend ninety percent of their time doing data engineering at the moment and not data science. Uh, awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for that, uh, Richard. So, Greg, what do you think of uh, of your question now? Do you have all the answers you're looking for? <laughs> I mean, I think you know, it depends, and it depends on your situation. is is a really good um, good answer. Um, I think from my side, I've I've seen um, the use of async as a pattern to be just very very powerful, especially for de deployment and allowing different teams and different people to be able to push consistently into production. And not have um, to have all the parties together. Um, I must. Admit, I think we always talk ill about the monolith as well. But I do remember, you know, you go into one spot. There's the code. There's the things you work on. Not having to understand, um, you know, a, a vast array of microservices to be quite challenging. But at the same time, I, I've seen it in enterprise. We had a really complex um, health environment with a lot of really, um, bespoke needs, and you had to understand the health insurance domain. And microservices made it so much easier for um, people bringing people up to speed because you really just had the um, the the concept of a microservice and it was pretty simple in its essence. You didn't have to deal with you know the whole complexity. And I think that is always that balance. You know, where exactly. does a small firm go? Yeah, well, it's also how you put them together. I mean, it's it's like anything, right? You can you can do a good job and break your um, design up properly so that those microservices are very independent. If they're tightly coupled, then that's you know, you've done it wrong. Um, but yeah, that's what we see a lot of the time. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, uh, ben, were you going to say something? Uh, I was, and I just wanted to come back to the um, to the component, the cultural component that Richard briefly touched on. I wouldn't mind drilling now just very briefly. Um, uh, Richard, that I'm sure you and others uh, on this call have probably attended far too many data conferences where we've probably heard close to some of the same things. And data mesh, and uh, and it's not just async, and you know, yeah, all of the, the typical uh, patterns and uh, and the next hottest thing that uh, vendors spit out. Uh, I'm interested in your perspective perspective about, um, uh, uh, about what you've seen either internally or externally that uh, that would suggest that um, data and analytics functions and really engineering functions are maturing in the way that they think about how they apply the microservices um, uh, to, to, to the uh, sort of functions, uh, to the business functions that they deliver. I'm really curious about your, uh, your thoughts on that. So I guess, uh, so if I understand the question, it's it's kind of like the cultural aspects of that and, and how that plays out. Um, so I think the the first thing is um, we need to remember always that these are sort of, we're doing, whether it's a system or whether it's an analytics um, application, it's in service of some business operational function, right? That's what we're trying to do. So, so having those things well mapped and these are not new concepts right it's like that old you know we've been talking about domain driven design since the 80s right so um that's the that's the kind of um the first part of it and and 
not as a technical pattern necessarily, but more as a we're trying to map directly and as closely to the business and what it's trying to do as possible. We're trying to give independence and autonomy to those business units as well. But I think that's one of the big problems that we still face right every day is that, especially in enterprises, is that it's very hard for um, individual business units to act independently and, and just go and run with an idea if they're very much tied to some central IT team that that's running, that's either trying to make everything the same for everyone or else just a bottleneck, right? Um, so, so I think the power and where we saw obviously things like microservices spring up, we're in those digital natives where the business was technology people as well, you know, um, and I think that's equally true with data. Um, you know, and the, the more that we can do that and create that culture where, you know, um, technology isn't something we chuck over the fence to a back office function. That's actually a core part of what we're doing. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't, aren't back office functions in technology. There are kind of are areas that are a bit removed, but, you know, like, you know, I think it's an interesting one for me. I have this conversation a lot, you know, about why we are where we are. And, and if you think about like large enterprises and who runs them, I think a lot of the time we see that the, you know, CIOs are typically, they've come out of infrastructure because historically that's held the largest budgets. But guess what? That's the that's the most furthest removed part of technology from, from our business ops. So, so I'm sort of hoping that as cloud becomes more normal, um, and we get people who are more in the app space, and we've kind of essentially outsourced our infrastructure to to the you know to the public clouds. That that um, we'll start to see more and more uh, organisations bringing that sort of technology focus into their business teams, because um, that's where we see it working well. Any any organisation that does that is generally like there's a quantum level of um, of, of difference in, in their ability to do stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your contribution and moving um, on to our next question, which was which was put forward by Ben. Uh, what's your process to prioritize the tech investment that has the biggest bang for buck and materially impacts your strategic outcomes? Ben, would you would you like to give us a little bit more info on that question, please? Believe it or not, Richard actually gave uh, gave half an answer to that, and I think it really highlights the uh, uh, highlights the uh, one one of the things I truly love about tech is the diversity of uh, of the different uh, business models, technology models, data models, um, and the different approaches companies have to their te uh, to their digital technology. But uh, what Richard just said in the last minute really struck struck a chord with me uh, because. Uh, I'm sitting on a podcast uh, working for a not-for-profit organisation uh, where my biggest uh, task is to stitch technology execution to the way that ACF uh, delivers its uh, activities and tactics for its supporters and donors. And so my decision-making process has to be based uh, primarily on what I hope or anticipate or expect my ex supporters and donors want out of ACF and really creating that virtuous circ uh, feedback circle of the, what they want and creating that, that centric, supporter-centric digital experience uh, 
for uh, Ford and then finally the right tools and technical decisions uh, uh, to make that. Whereas I'm um, looking at Greg and Richard and they're coming in from really different verticals uh, and positions. So I'd really love to get an insight uh, for, from my other guests uh, in terms of their thought processes or um, or the, or how they cut to the chase and go, right, this is the, uh, the technology decisions or stack that we're going to make to make the business better. Okay, cool. So, so to repeat the question was, um, what's your process to prioritize the tech investment that has the biggest bang for buck and materially impacts your strategic outcomes? Greg, what do you, what do you think of this of this question? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really great question. Um, where I've been probably burnt before is and um, because I didn't focus on it was actually looking at threats and looking at my my. Um, really my legacy code, legacy systems. And I think a lot of businesses run really, um, and before I jump into my opportunities, I think opportunities are really um, easy to focus on. But where I've found that I've had legacy systems, either um, legacy OS, legacy programming languages, sometimes a lot of often legacy third parties, um, they sit there and they run. And then when they fall, they seem to fall off a cliff. And they seem to be, and, and it's, um, it's always, I think, harder to see coming than, um, I think the incremental opportunity that you get. So a lot of my processes around is what's the maturity of the tech that we've got. Um, and I've seen it in voice systems. I think I've seen it probably in, in a lot of in programming language as well. Like when you have to security patch things and you find if you have no S that it hasn't just been patched and it's running some old system and it had to be there. And there's always lots of good reasons for it. But um, focusing the, the technology investment, I think, suitably on that has um, steered me quite well. Um, but I think the other one just on opportunity is investing in the full piece as well. Like you've, you've spoken about some of the tools, and I think I've seen this, um, this is, um, probably Salesforce and Splunk. Both of them potentially produce a lot of value for your business, but it's not just a technology investment, and it's not just a one-off technology investment. I think people don't plan for it. They go, I'm going to do a business project, how many millions of dollars they put into it, but then it's done in two, three years, and then it just seems to... The, the, it, it doesn't have enough either momentum or it hasn't picked up inside the business or the, the business hasn't realized there is an ongoing resourcing on type of these um, projects. And I would say there seems to be a correlation between the value that a pro these, some of these products can give you and then the continued investment and cost of the staff to run those products. And I would say um, Splunk and Salesforce, both very expensive in the, in the market, um, but the, the benefit for them is, is quite strong. And so, um, where we have seen uh, a good result was just continued investment in that beyond, you know, in sort of the five-year sort of planning of we're going to have a team, this is how it's going to work, this is how we're going to mature the business, this is how this thing um, is going to alter the way we work um, in the long term as well as in the short term. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, um, ben, did you get the answer uh, you were looking for to your question? That, that, I, I loved, I love that, Greg, and I feel both the pain and the opportunity with uh, with Salesforce and Splunk, particularly with Salesforce. With apologies to some of the Salesforce people who I sense might be listening uh, to, to this podcast as well, too. <laughs> um, Richard, did, did you want to add anything as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, it's an interesting one, a good question, because I think there's, you know, a fairly, you know, the, the sort of standard or slightly naive approach um, is you go, well, let's look at the business strategy and let's let's align our IT investments to that and, you know, what's project of the year or, or two years. Um, 
and I think that's 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 a part of the the, the picture, of course. Um, but it's but you know I guess when we look at um, you know and I sort of mentioned it I guess before we have we have operational things that run all the time, right? You know I've worked at at banks where um, the you know their online web portal for, for the bank was was like probably the number one most used app in the whole company. Um, but but the mobile strategy was their sexy thing and they put all their energy on that and that got all the best developers and all the attention and all the money while their, their actual thing that probably mattered more um, was kind of left to, to kind of rot a bit. And and so I think, um, you know, having, uh, if you can sort of craft a more of a holistic picture that, that includes how well are we serving our core operational processes, what systems have we got in place today, what's the health of those like, you know, so... Um, I read something the other day. I can't remember who, but I, but I um, but but this part stuck with me, which was that they don't like to talk about technical debt. They prefer to use system health as a measure and to promote that to senior management to actually say, hey, look, you know, this is all the stuff that's kind of just running, and yeah, it's good. We don't have to worry about that this year. This isn't this isn't something we need to be concerned about. But maybe you know, as things start to get older and creaking, it's like, well, actually, now we do. You know, the forecast for this system is that in the next three years, we're going to have to start spending money on it. And yes, you can ignore it, but it's just going to make it worse and bad later. Um, so I think if we can do that. And then, of course, it's the old, you know, effort versus impact. Um, you know, what are you getting an ROI out of? What's really important? And um, obviously do things that are, that, are, that are easy and high value first and do things that are um, not easy and high value second. But um, but I think, yeah, it's it's it's. You know, when you add politics and just the noise and the fog of war of big companies, that can be uh, it can be challenging. Great answers, everyone. Really, really interesting question. Um, the next question was put forward by Richard. Uh, well, actually, Richard had two questions. Uh, the first one is, what is the most common technical mistake you see businesses making? And the second, what tech decisions affect quality the most? So let's let's start to break it down with the first question, which is, what is the most common technical mistake you see businesses making? Um, Richard, do you want to give us a, a, a background on that question, perhaps? Context, yeah, sure. So I guess one of the things, I guess, um, certainly in my... You know, I've been in a couple of consulting roles in recent years, and I think one of the benefits of that is that you get to see a lot of different companies in a short amount of time, and you start to notice a few patterns. Um, and so I think, you know, often we'll walk into a place and meet a customer and hear about their problems, and you can almost predict what they're doing before they finish telling you um, where they're at. And so... Yeah, I was just interested to um, to hear from from the others what uh, what what the versions of that that they what pathologies they might have come across in their in their time. For sure, Greg, do you want to um, do you want to to give your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think I've seen different problems across different sizes of organisations, and I would say within small business, I see lone gifted developer that no one wants to touch, and no one knows what they do, and no one. They don't have to justify themselves against, and I think enough people, either because they've been there a long time or they have a strong weight of a personality, um, and by virtue of that, you don't see that technical debt actually being, or that sort of risk being realised until either they exit, they have a holiday, they, someone else does need to pick it up, and you realise actually what the, the difference is, or 
can you live without that that person? Um, there's a great book called The Hard Things About Hard Things as a CEO, and I think they sort of talk a little bit about that where you get a sort of entrenched um, person and then there's some of the technology decisions as well. And I think the other thing small business do, and the good things about small business is that you get to try and do different things. There's not as much rigor around what you can you can do. You can There's not much legacy, but do people then, then choose the flavor of the month I think versus the outcome. Um, I'm not sure. It's interesting, gentlemen. See, but I must. But I see a similar age group in the the developers within the the industry. Um, um, and so I actually find, from a coaching point of view, I'm actually having similar coaching conversations to where I was probably five years ago, even even ten years ago. Um, and so we're sort of still addressing the same problems and people that still they haven't come across these things. And I think once you've done microservices, you go, well, I've I've enjoyed the benefits and I've felt the pain and now I'm more matured and I see a lot of people actually haven't done them like, oh, that's the answer. And you're like, it's sometimes the answer. Um, probably within enterprises, I see um, actually not setting the bar high enough, I think. And, and you, you touched on it, Richard, but on technical debt versus um, system health, not either getting that message across or um, it's just not not heard. And I think um, I see a lot of people, you go and talk to the technical team and, and they you know, they can be very articulate to you with the technical background on what the problems are within the scene and in the systems, whether, you know, how the data is stored, how it's accessed, the, just the, the the code complexity with some systems, and that doesn't seem to translate out as well. And so because it doesn't get enough tension, I think people don't actually see this. They think those systems are slow to work and just by virtue of that has to be that way. And I don't think it always does. Um, and probably the one I see across both of them is build versus buy. I think um, developers still have a, a nature of building and it's a wonderful feeling to build something. Um, but a lot of times it is faster to buy something and then um, have that, you know, move yourself forward and then you, you're extending on from that as well. And I do think it's interesting even when we look at like the, the effects of chat GPT on, on, on solving your own problems. I'm not sure if you guys remember, I came up in a C, C++ world, just banging my head against how C++ you get it to work, reading some forums, there was almost no one to ask you read books. I'm not sure they were just these big, thick things. And now we've moved to an age of where you ask a computer how to, how to code as well. And so the, um, the I think, do you need to build it? Do you need to solve it yourself? Is um, a direction people should ask of themselves. And I think as well with businesses, you know, buy what you can within reason and then build what you, you can make a, a difference with. <clears throat> Awesome, awesome. Thank, thanks for your input, Greg. Um, ben, do you want to tell us uh, what is the most common technical mistake you see uh, business making? Um, oh, where do I start? Um, I, I might I might take a slightly different view uh, from an enterprise and government perspective. What I've seen is that, uh, and it's uh, and for those with a slight security bent, uh, what I've seen is that. Uh, particularly over the last few years, as uh, as uh, data security has uh, has become quite big, uh, there's almost like a rush towards uh, uh, trying to fill some of the gaps, or or almost dare I say that not doing enough. And I uh, and I'm particularly thinking about my time in in government as well too, where uh, the the government hierarchy, uh, I would argue. Uh, <laughs> that really the impedes the, the the pace of decision making and making quality technical decisions that as as well too. So um, when I think when I think I was thinking about this question the other night and uh, what I struggled with the question and and what I came to the conclusion was uh, was that uh, particularly 
in large enterprises and governments, it's it's very easy to swing to what I swing to either ends what I call a pendulum. You either do, yeah, you, know, you get you start from a point where you don't note a lot, and you may not know where all your key data uh, data and technology repositories are. For example, you might not know not, not all of the key um, uh, shadow IT or services that you've got uh, in your enterprise, for example. And then yeah, you get to a point where you go, oh, we should do something about that. And you almost swing to the other end of the spectrum where you're trying to do too much to try and resolve all of the issues that you thought you might have had with legacy or or going, hey, we need to do a data audit or, or, or get there for some overarching governance about it. And you swing to the other end of the spectrum and you're still impeding innovation anyway because you're selling on too far to the other end and uh, and uh, your senior business leaders go, hang on, we thought we were fixing that. Why can't we still get the same level of products and services or a better level uh, of service uh, out of that? And that I wouldn't necessarily say the same thing about small to medium enterprises, but I do say as a really big uh, ongoing issue in the bigger enterprises or those with a certain level of bureaucracy or consultation uh, or similar, where the, it really, the, I just see those mistakes happen again and again and again. And it's not necessarily the fault of the people or the, your technical personnel who are trying to, to do the best they can. But that pendulum sometimes swings so quickly, or, or also nothing happens, that, that they all get caught between two worlds, and suddenly you end up in almost in the worst place than you were that, that two years ago. And so that can get a, a little bit scary. And um, and I think there's uh, there's always a, there's always an element of better devil you don't know in the, in the, particularly in bigger enterprises as well too. Uh, there are times where uh, you go. Let's go forward. We're going to uh, commit to this particular investment, and uh, and and Bob's very cool. We're just going to go that uh, they yeah, go all into this, and we'll get to the benefits and outcomes that we get to. And then at some point, the whether because there's interference from politics or fog of war or um or the or there's changeover in technical personnel. The the I think the biggest other mistake I see is projects or programs that start with a particular outcomes and then end up delivering a different set of outcomes, whether that's business or technical, which get a little bit scary and the executives go, that's not what we asked for three years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why it got to that point or why things changed uh, um, along the way. And uh, we don't have time to get to, into all of those, uh, all of the uh, whys and hows and possibles, but uh, I just see that mistake happening in big enterprises again and again. And it really that makes executives question why that certain uh, why a lot of technology projects fail, and it's because the outcomes are not what was originally promised, and that's pretty scary for a lot of them. Great. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for that. Um, and the second question that Richard had was, what tech decisions affect quality the most? Greg, what do you think about this one? Uh, it's guaranteed the answer can either be right or wrong, depending on your um the the, the situation. I think, um, I think for for me, I, and it, like the level of coupling. It was interesting. I was talking to a colleague the other the while ago, and and he was like, "Oh, we've got this um, our speed of delivery is slow." And you think it's about the architecture, and for them, it was actually they just couldn't get enough people working on the same code base at at, at one one time because it was just it was all in one thing, and then it was like, "How do you break it up?" Um, and but I think you know we've touched on it as well that too much coupling is or too much uncoupling is not a, a good thing as well. It makes things you know too distributed and or, or or you have to understand each piece and bringing them back together takes a lot of effort. So 
Um, I think that balance for me, that balancing of coupling in both um, where the logic lives um, and what's the reason for change. So really just going back to your solid. I find so I find so much of what we're just talking about. Someone mentioned like we're talking a lot of the same problems since the 1970s and 80s and Uncle Bob's sort of solid principles seem to have just been still just as relevant in an architectural point of view than they do within a, within a coding point of view. Um, so I think nailing that level of coupling of um, you know, can you get people working by themselves on a single code base? That's when things go fast. You know, you, you don't have to um, wait for someone else to um, to do a good to to complete their task before you can do your task. And as well, nothing else is moving around you as well. So you don't have to continually assess your solution against something else which might have changed in the system because it's it's um, within the either the parameters or it's. Um, Def, um, defined within some sort of scope that allows you to work uh, quickly on a problem as well. And I think really quality comes down to is it really time and, and, and focus and the ability to iterate. And if you can do that, I think you'll reach a good quality outcome. If you have things which slow down that iteration, then you you might still get there, but it's much harder to get to a quality outcome. Fantastic. What do you think, Ben? What, what's your what's your thoughts on on what tech decisions affect quality the most? Oh, I would echo absolutely everything Greg has just uh, just said, and um, I think the only thing I can add is that the determination of quality also varies a bit uh, between organisations as well, too, and. Uh, and that can feel like a set of moving targets, but it's not right. I think everyone has an inner sense of what quality looks like, and you can define that quantitatively and, and, and quality uh, as well too. But I really come back to uh, to Greg's point about uh, about consistency and getting people to work from the same code base and working it so it's consistent. That practices consistent skills, a consistent application uh, of the of the way that people work every day, so that you get to a point where your code base uh, is really elevating that foundational base at, at to a higher level consistently and, and iteratively uh, on an ongoing basis, so that you don't let that level of quality drop um, in the long term. And I guess to to take this in a slightly direction, uh, direction Richard, when I, uh, when you asked that question, I guess I was curious about. Um, I won't ask you how you define quality, but I guess I, I was more interested in the, was there a particular angle that you were coming from? Whether was it a, a technical quality or was it a, a product quality or, or what were you thinking? Yeah, so I mean, I think it can be can be anything, right? So quality is is highly subjective, um, right? And it's context dependent. You know, if if, if you're a you know, high frequency trading platform, then latency is going to be one of your quality metrics, right? And you're going to want it to be super low. Um, whereas that probably doesn't matter quite so much for, for most other businesses that don't have real time sort of needs. Um, so I, I guess where I was sort of coming from on that one is that I, I guess I've seen that, you know, for a long time, um, it's and it's still true, sadly, in, in the data world, um, where we in a general uh, tacking on quality at the end, right? It's, it's a, oh, let's do, let's do a testing afterwards, you know, let's rather than sort of actually, as you probably, you know, alluded to Ben, defining it or, or, or attempting to define it even up front to have an idea of what we're actually shooting for and then to kind of consciously bake that in as part of your process, as part of your, you know, your methodology or whatever you want to call it, you know. If you can do that, then I think that's... Um, that's going to generally lead to a lot, lot better outcomes. 
Yeah, and um, and the reason I wanted to poke at that a bit was because if I dust my old data governance hat off, um, the, da- uh, the data practitioners will know about the Dimbok 2 and um, methodology and practices and uh, and think about what makes for good uh, uh, data uh, data quality. One of the things that I have seen that does affect, that sort of indirectly affects the outcomes of technology decisions is the quality of the data um, and the available data. Data sources that uh, that uh, technology services get access to. I think what a lot of organisations and people don't realise is that one, uh, it's really hard to measure data quality because again, it's subjective across different organisations, and and they're usually a legacy item. But the, the but when you then start investing in technology decisions and services that demand uh, or uh, or take the data from those different data sources, that suddenly you the, you, suddenly you're starting to expose and surface and combine and join and integrate data that's either that, that someone may not have ratified or is not completely that that's not up to date or doesn't have the appropriate integrity practices applied to it and suddenly you get steep yeah you get crap at, at the other end as well too and uh, you, you see a lot of organizations investing starting to invest into data quality and data governance and data enablement uh, type uh, resources and services, which is a sign of the right direction. But I would long argue that there is no substitute for building a basic level of data literacy amongst your uh, your frontline and organisational staff in order to build some uh, some level of um, understanding of data and some level of quality in, into everything that they do. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think we we are seeing some some encouraging uh, signs. Uh, it's certainly a, a growth and focus area for from for Mantle Group as a business. Um, you know that that whole space because I think especially in light of everyone now has got the you know the shiny laser pointer of of uh, LLMs and GPT that they all want to go and rush off to try and take advantage of. It's well, guess what, guys? It's the same problem we've always had. You, your data's spread everywhere, it's not connected and you don't know what it is. So um, until we solve those foundational problems, you, you know, you're not going to get very far. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Greg, do you have anything uh, to add before we conclude this this podcast? No, nothing further. But I, I, I really do think, Binia, your point on defining quality up front actually is a, is a really good one. I think um, I would say um, as you, you come from a background, whatever your background is and what you've defined quality before, it's, it's sort of you inherently just think that's what it is. But it's when you sit down and say, well, what are we actually gunning for? Um, helps both focus yourself and focuses your team. Well, fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys, for your incredible input. Um, we leave it here uh, for now. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining me on the podcast and providing such inter- interesting insights on what tech decision can you make to improve your business. Um, thank you all for listening, and I look forward to catch you uh, next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast. Bye.